Would you bow your hearts in prayer with me? Lord God, we praise you for a variety of reasons. You are the, the only God, the one true God, and you're a God who in your holiness and in your singularity that you would treat us with kindness. Lord, we are so unworthy. And you are so abundantly gracious that you, the holy God of heaven, would even desire to walk with us and have your name on our lips our lips that cause so much harm, that, that sin, that are dishonest, speak ill of one another. Lord, you would, you would desire for us to know you. And that you would patiently walk with us. Lord, we praise you for that. And we praise you that you would Christ, that you would leave the throne to literally walk with us in brokenness and poverty and humility so that you could die on the cross, making us holy and acceptable and pleasing and making us children of God. We praise you for this. Lord, we pray that you would turn our hearts and affections and attention to your word that through it we can be shaped and molded for your purposes and it's in Jesus name we pray amen I don't know about you but there's something about Christmas for me that I can only describe as comfy it's just Comfy, and it's not the sweaters, it's not like the super thick socks, although those help. But there's just something like seeing the, the trees, the decorations, all the familiarity. It's just comfy. And for a lot of us, Christmas is, is this kind of mixture of, of the reminiscent of traditions in our families, of, of, of things, movies we've grown up watching, and the anticipation of the new memories. But it's, it's the old that makes it special, right? Because the new usually just disappoints us. And we're like, well, maybe next Christmas will be good. It's, it's like sports teams. Maybe next year will be good. But there's something about listening to Bing Crosby of watching Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and the, the one that's not quite claymation, and it's not quite normal-mation. It's just weird Rudolph. We like that. And there's, there's something about the making of and consuming of old family recipes that are handed down from sometime around the Industrial Revolution. 
you know, you get the divinity and the fudge. The, the pepper nuts is one that I always really loved. And there's those special side dishes that remind you of, of great, great Aunt Rosie or whoever that would be. And then for us as believers, it goes beyond that. Because there's the songs that we grew up singing. I can't hear the song, Go Tell It on the Mountain, without thinking of the ugly blonde pews in Westchester, or Westbrook, the church I grew up at, Westbrook. These pews look much better than the ones I grew up with that had no padding at all. And I just remember like this royal blue carpet. You shouldn't have Grover colored carpet, but we did. <laughs> but it goes to these songs that we that proclaim the greatness of the Messiah's birth. We think of prophecies that are fulfilled, that we, we call on every year at this time, reminding us that God has kept these promises and he's going to continue to keep his promises. Promises like, for unto us a child is born. And his, his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Promises like, but, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be a ruler of Israel, or coming forth from of old, from ancient days. And of course, the sign given from Isaiah. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And it's that verse in, in Isaiah 7, 14. Emmanuel, we get this as you're reading the Bible. It's the first time you see that name. But it's not a new name like the name I gave my children or your, your parents gave you that may have been a new name to your family or, or certainly was new to you and not necessarily true about you, but you grew in to have that name be your identity. This name, Emmanuel, is just telling us something that's always been true of God. That he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And this idea of God with us isn't something that started in Bethlehem when Jesus was born, but it was always true of the triune God. It was true in the garden. It was true after the fall. And Christmas screams this to us every year. That it's good news to you who are tired and weary and feel unworthy, to those of you who are oppressed, to those of you who are worshiping with joy, to those of you who feel alone, God is with you. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to look at different events of God with his people, building up to Christmas. And this morning, we're going to be in Exodus 3, looking specifically at the fact that God was with his people before they were his people. 
So let's go. If you have, please turn there or, or scroll there or whatever it is that you do. Let's go to Exodus 3. The passage that you always think about with Christmas, right? Now Moses was keeping his flock, the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led, he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, to the mountain of God, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. He said, here I, here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take the sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a land, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, well, who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? Well, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, 
And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians." The God known as Emmanuel was with his people before they were his people. Now we're going to look through the flow of this text, which is Moses and the people and Moses and the people, and we're going to see the types of people God is with who are his people. And you might find in one of these groups that, hey, I kind of sit in that group. And I hope you're encouraged to know the God of heaven is with you. The God of heaven is with the wanderers. Verses 1 to 6, we find Moses. Moses is, quite honestly, not living his best life. Partly because Joel Osteen books had not come out yet. And partly because of his background. But mostly the second. Moses had escaped Egypt. Word got out that he killed a guy and tried to hide his body in the sand. He's been rejected by his fellow Israelites who don't see, who don't seem to have a high regard for him and is wanted for murder by the people who raised him. So he's fled. He's taken off. He actually takes out another guy and in so doing gets a wife. Probably not the best way to find a wife. Works for Moses. He's now enjoying, to the best of his ability, a pretty quiet life with his in-laws, shepherding sheep, living in somewhat anonymity. He's fled and is minding his own business. And while feeling disqualified from being an Israelite by his upbringing, feeling disqualified from being an Egyptian by his actions and by his crime, this is really the best he can hope for. So then he happens on a small fire in the mountains. Probably, I don't know how common this was. I've never been a shepherd at that time in that place. But I'm sure there's the concern of, hey, if there's a fire, either... I can warm myself by it, or I should put it out so it doesn't spread and ruin what could be good grazing land. So he goes up to the fire, and he realizes this is quite bizarre, because the bush appears to be on fire, but it's not really on fire. It's not being consumed. It's not crackling. All the signs of combustion are not there, except for the visual fire that's going on. But the bush is fine. One commentator says this miraculous sign pointed to God's eternity and self-sufficiency. Like the burning bush, God never runs out of fuel. His glory never dims. His beauty never fades. 
He always keeps burning bright. He goes on to say he is completely self-existent and self-sufficient in his eternal being. And then he quotes Gregory of Nyssa, your favorite commentator, from 330 uh, AD, somewhere around there. And Gregory says that what Moses saw in the burning bush was nothing less than the transcendent essence and cause of the universe on which everything depends and alone subsists. Here's the deal. You don't get a partial experience of God. God doesn't say, here's an eighth of me for you to deal with. We get God. Moses didn't get some version of God that was tolerable. He got the full holiness of God. And we see that because Moses walks up and the first words of the Lord, aside from Moses, Moses calling him by name, is, hey, uh, you can't just come up to me. Do not come near. Take off your sandals. The ground on which you are standing is holy ground. Moses hides his face knowing that this is God from hearing God's own confession of himself, that he is the God of the fathers. Moses has to respond accordingly to the holiness of God. Moses has such an amazing ministry and work, we sometimes forget the nature of the beginning of it, that Moses is out wandering, trying to hide from his past, feeling disqualified from anything that he felt rooted in, in identity, and here he is, he's a crook on the lamb, and God comes to him. God, in his holiness, comes to this guy who's hiding from his sin, hiding from his past, and God calls him and says, I'm going to do something through you. No matter where you feel you are right now, no matter what you think you've done that disqualifies you, the holy God of heaven and his grace are bigger than those things. He comes to us even when we are not ready to go to him. This keeps very much with what John tells us, that God loved you first. He loved you before you loved him. This isn't about Moses' ability or readiness. This is about the covenant God of heaven who is with his people. Moses hasn't done a thing yet to show that he's worthy of anything, and God calls him by name, God acknowledges Moses' own unholiness. But he calls him to enter in. It's almost as if Emmanuel, God with us, is full of grace and mercy. It's almost as though his faithfulness to his own promises are of greater significance than our ability to not sin and our ability to have our act together. God is with the wanderers. And what we see next is that God is with the captive and the oppressed. Listen to what the Lord says about the people. I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry from their taskmasters. I know their suffering. I've come to deliver them. Their cry has reached my ears, and I have seen the oppression. God 
is not unaware or uncaring about their plight. In fact, it's quite the opposite. He knows it very well. Now, it's, it's, it's good here to remember the events of the Old Testament. God has told Abraham, you're going to have generations, and you're, you're, you're generations of generations. You're going to be the father of nations. Your offspring will outnumber the stars in the sky. He reiterated that promise in different ways to Abraham's son and grandson. But the people themselves, even though God has made these promises to their forefathers, the people themselves have not come to a covenant understanding of God. They haven't entered into that yet. That's coming still. And God here is calling them his people. God knows it's coming. He is loving them before they know him, before they love him back. He's calling them my people. He's calling them the children of Israel. God knows their suffering. He cares about their suffering. And he enters into their suffering in order to deliver them out of their suffering. They had cried out, they had prayed for a long time. And now their deliverer is here. The people were suffering greatly. They were being oppressed, abused, overworked, marginalized, and objectified. God saw and he heard it all. There was nothing they had experienced that God was not aware of. And in the coming year, God would get full justice for the wrongs done against them. There's something in here we need to pay attention to. Whether you are someone who has oppressed, marginalized, objectified another person, or you are someone who has been marginalized, objectified, oppressed, abused. God knows, God hears, God sees, God is present, and God acts. And if you are someone who has been on the giving end of those things, it is a call for repentance. And if you are someone who has been on the receiving end of those things, it is a call for peace. Knowing that God is with you. He knows, he hears, he sees, and he acts on behalf of his children. Their cries reach their Father in heaven. The sufferings of the children of God, whether it's by crime, religious persecution, or any other form of injustice or ailment, these sufferings matter to God. He is with those who suffer. You are not alone. I want to take just a brief moment to call to mind our Stephen's ministry, where we have a whole bunch of people here at Westchester who are trained specifically to walk with you in the midst of your tough season, however long that tough season is. Whether it's the loss of a loved one, the loss of a dream, 
loss of a job, battling an illness. We have people who want to sit with you, listen to you, and pray with you. Your elders and your pastors want to know about this suffering, build support around you, and care for you. The people around you want to be available to extend God's love to you, the same love that they've experienced. And you can do exactly what the people of Israel were doing in their captivity. You can cry out to God, and we know that those cries reach our Father in heaven. Take advantage of the prayer wall in the back. Write out requests. Stick them on there. Let the body anonymously be lifting you up. God hears it. God is with the wanderers. He's with the captive and oppressed. And God is with his fearful servants. So we've gone, God has said, Moses, Moses. He's turned his attention to the people, and now we're back to Moses. He just said, I've, I've seen, I've heard, I've known, I've entered in, I've seen, and I've heard the suffering of the people. And so God does something, and I think this is funny. You might not think it's funny. I'm used to having this superior sense of humor that not everyone understands. I get it. It's okay. Not everyone gets my brand of humor. I think this is really funny. Moses, remember, has fled Egypt. The people have rejected him. Pharaoh wants him tried and punished for murder. And God says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh. I think that's hilarious. I could, like Moses is like, God, I don't know if you really know why I'm here. Like there's so many people closer to Pharaoh than me. Like we were like, like cousins growing up. It didn't go well. If it did go well, I would still be there instead of here with the sheep. But God says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh. I like to think God said that in an upbeat tone. <laughs> I'll send you to Pharaoh that you may bring the people of Israel out of Egypt, the children of Israel out of Egypt. Moses is like, they hate me. He wants to kill me. I don't, I don't see this going well. Moses was smart enough to not say that. So instead, he kind of says it without saying it. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Who am I, this fugitive running away, this guy who left the palace and is now tending sheep, this guy who's been rejected? I have the lowest approval rating of anyone in Egypt. Who am I that I should go? And God forgoes the pep talk. God doesn't try to, you know what, Moses, you, like, clearly you're the right guy for this. And he doesn't like lay out like a bullet pointed like qualifications of Moses. He's like, I get it. You're awful. I'll be with you. Isn't that interesting? Because how many times do we try to disqualify ourselves from ministry? Well, who am I to do this? Who am I to make disciples of my neighbors? Who am I to make this stand at my school or the office place? Who am I to fill in the blank? 
who am I to go to Pharaoh and lead these people out? And God's only assurance to him is the only assurance he needs. He just says, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. We need to realize, and we need to believe, and it's, it, this is really important. God gave Moses in that phrase, in that sentence, but I'll be with you. God gave Moses everything he needed and then some. God saying, I will be with you, is everything we need and then some. The challenge, at least for me, and I don't think I'm alone in this, is that truth is the hardest for me to believe when I need to believe it the most. Does that make sense? When I'm in the position that I absolutely have to rely on the fact that my God is with me and that's enough, those are the times that I, when I need it the most, those are the times that it's hardest for me to believe that. It's one of many, many reasons I need brothers and sisters in Christ around me all the time. It's one of many, many reasons I need the Holy Spirit leading me instead of me leading myself. So God says, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you. Moses is like, oh great, I have a sign. I have something I can walk in the room, know that God is with me. That I have sent, this is the sign that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt and you serve God on this mountain, Moses has got to be like, God, I don't know if you know how signs work. <laughs> this is a terrible sign. Like, this is what we want. Here's what we want God to say. Here's how you know I'm going to be with you. When you walk in the room, there will be a red rug on the ground. And we go, oh, yeah, there's not too many red rugs. We walk in, we see the red rug, and we're like, ah, God is with me. But here's what God says to Moses. Here's how you know I'm going to be with you when the job is done. Practically speaking, this is just kind of a terrible sign. But here's what it requires. Here's what God is saying to Moses. Here's how you know I'm going to be with you. When you believe that I'm going to accomplish what I've just said I'll do. When you have faith that I'm going to get done what I've said I will get done. And we have so many things in our lives. Those moments where we need to cling to the fact that God is with us and that's enough. Here's how you know God is with you. And one day, we're in the new city of God. And our Father in heaven wipes those tears from our eyes. That's how we'll know. This is how we know that God upholds his promise to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That one day, we'll close our eyes on earth, we'll open them in heaven, and our... Father will call us by our name and say, I've got a room for you. He said, Moses, I've got a sign for you. And the sign is I'm going to do this. Hmm. 
So Moses is afraid to go. God gives him this promise. And then Moses, God said, you're going to have to go to Pharaoh. Moses knows, I'm going to have to go to the people too. I got to go to the people. It's, it's built in. He just assumes it. He goes, okay. So when I go to the people, Moses hasn't even gotten to his speech stuff yet. He goes, all right, when I go to the people and I say, hey, saw this bush. It was on fire, but it wasn't on fire. And it talked to me. What's the name I should give them? God said, they'll know me by Frank. No. <laughs> he says something that appears in English to us is actually much weirder. I am who I am. Now in English, this is weird to us. In Hebrew, it would have made a little more sense. Now the Lord says, I am who I am. But he actually gives... In saying that, he talks a lot about himself, and he gives Moses and the people a lot to think on. He speaks of his self-sufficiency, something that not even Pharaoh has. Pharaoh has to eat three meals a day. God doesn't. Pharaoh has, there, there's, there's a tomb being prepared for Pharaoh. God has a throne that's eternal. And in his name, God teaches, this is something that the commentary I was looking at today, he said, or, or this week, he says, God teaches Moses and the people something, some important truths about himself. This Hebrew verb to be, there's some play on words that happen. And he says, most translations obscure this name, the Lord, verse 15, as it relates to I will be and I am. That when God says, I will be with you, and God says, I am who I am, there's a play on words happening there. And it happens over and over and over again. And so what God is saying is, it is I am who will be with you. Even in his own name, he is reiterating, I will be with you. And he's reiterating with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that he hasn't changed a bit over the course of these last 400 years. Finally, we see that God is with the people needing deliverance. We're back to the people. And, and God gives this message to Moses, say this to the people. And in 15 to 16, he, he calls on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he's the God of them. He's calling on his, his past faithfulness. I'm going to give you to this land. And in verse 17, verse 16 and 17, he makes this promise. I have observed you, what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you out of the land of affliction of Egypt and to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. And he makes the promise of coming power in verses 18 to 20 and in 21 to 22, he gives them the picture of future victory that they are going to plunder Egypt. And this message to the people is just absolutely beautiful. He says, I'm going to give you Victory and deliverance. And I'm going to do it better than you could ever do it yourself. 
Notice he doesn't say, he goes, look, guys, I found a back door to Egypt Pharaoh forgot about. And if we go there at 2 in the morning, we can sneak out. He doesn't say that. This is what he says. I know, verse 19, the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I'm going to stretch out my hand. I'm going to strike Egypt. Bang, bang, out. That was not me. Someone have a microphone? <laughs> that was... Guys, I got to confess, I've been dabbling in ventriloquism. <laughs> and I haven't, haven't quite figured out how to harness it. Um, and so sometimes I surprise myself. Um, I'll, I'll work to be better with my ventriloquism. I, sorry about that. Let's get back to the text. God says, it's going to take a mighty hand. And so I'm going to stretch out my hands. And over the next year, I'm going to do some stuff that you can't imagine. And I'm going to strike down Egypt. And I'm going to strike down Pharaoh. Here's the deal. You know who hates slavery? Slaves. Slaves hate slavery. They detest it. Here's how we know this. You look through history. Anytime slaves could revolt, they did. Sometimes it was successful. Sometimes it wasn't. Sometimes it was successful in pockets. Sometimes we got a new country out of it. Slaves hate slavery. They won't be in it any longer than they absolutely have to. The people of Israel were in slavery for 400 years. Now let's put this in a picture. Slavery is horrible, horrible, awful, awful part of our country's history. Let's say, I know it started a long time before this. I know it started a long time before America got their independence. But let's say slavery started in 1776 when America got their independence. That would mean if it was 400 years, it wouldn't end till 2176. That we'd still have 150, it's more than that, right? Like, I don't do math real well. Yeah, yeah, 150 years. It's a lot. 400 years. Is 400 years too long to be in slavery? They couldn't get out. And if they could, let's say they could on their own. Let's say they found a deliverance. Either the deliverance, the deliverance would look a couple ways. One, a huge revolt where a ton of Israelites die in the battle. That's one possibility. You get freedom, but a ton of your own people die. Two, you somehow, with how many ever hundreds of thousands of Israelites there were at the time, you somehow escape in the night. Then you always live in fear. God came to them and he said, look, you can't deliver yourself. You are in a situation that is unjust, you're being abused, you're being oppressed, and you can't get out. And even if you did get out, it would either cost you too much or you would live in fear the rest of your life of being recaptured. But I can get you out. I, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, am going to use my mighty hand, a hand mightier than Pharaoh could ever imagine, 
I'm going to show that his pantheon of gods, including himself, is completely and utterly untrustworthy and unreliable and doesn't care. And I'm going to give you deliverance. And not only am I going to give you freedom, but you're going to come out loaded. You, without touching a sword, are going to plunder the most powerful country on earth. that's the God that I am. And that's the promise I make with you. Because I, the God of heaven, am with you. God gives better deliverance than we could ever give ourselves. And so this morning, maybe you're here and you really needed that reminder that God is with you. Maybe you're here and you need someone to help you cry out. And we have a lot of people who would love to help you cry out. And maybe you're here and you're needing a deliverance you can't give yourself. And that deliverance starts with Jesus. He delivers us. He is with us. If you want to talk more about that after the service, I'd love to talk to you up here. I know the other pastors, the elders would love to talk to you about that. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good. We praise you that you are with us, that you are a God who dwells with his people. We thank you, Jesus, that you took on flesh. You took on flesh. You made yourself a human, making yourself nothing, emptying yourself. You came to be with us to deliver us. Lord, we long to live in the full power and the full joy and peace of that deliverance. Would you help us? It's in Jesus' name we pray.